chapter 3, I'll be re- begin reading in verse 3. Because you just were standing, remain seated. Uh, but verses 3 through 8 is our text for tonight. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests which were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had no children, and Eleazar and Ithmar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron their father. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. So we're looking at more counting tonight, actually. Uh, we were, we've been, Numbers chapter 1 was a census. Numbers chapter 2 is a census. Now Numbers chapter 3 is another census that we're going to get to. But I want to start with what I call risky disobedience. Risky disobedience. God deserves and expects obedience from his people. Just like a parent does their child, a parent wants their children to obey, so God the Father does his children. He expects us to obey him. Well, notice Aaron's sons offered strange fire, it says here in verse 4. This uh, pericope is also repeated in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. And scholars have debated for a long time, what was this strange fire that they offered? Well, rather than answer that, since uh, I wasn't there, I don't know, here's the bottom line. Whatever this fire was, whether it was from uh, some false god or something else, they did things their way, not God's way. That's the bottom line. This strange fire is something they offered their own way, not the way that God had prescribed. Now, God has always been approachable, but only on his terms. He's always been approachable, but only on his terms. And so keep that in mind today. God may be approached, but only on his terms. And the only way for us to get to God is through Christ. Jesus said that in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so anyway, they were trying to approach God. They were doing the priestly duty, bringing the fire, which they should have done. But it was strange fire. And whatever it was that was strange about it, this was not God's way. This was their way. They knowingly disobeyed God, and so they reaped the results of that disobedience. We know this, that a sacrifice without obedience is useless. Uh, Samuel brings that out in 1 Samuel 15, 22, where he says to obey is better than sacrifice. And so they knowingly disobeyed God, and as a result, uh, they reaped the results. Attitude is critical. When we make our sacrifices to God nowadays, whether it's time, talents, treasures, attitude is critical. Just go back and look at Cain, Cain and Abel. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Well, Abel offered, you know, a a flesh offering, a meat offering, and that's why God liked it. And uh, Cain offered the fruit, so uh, God didn't like that. Well, that's not true at all. In fact, you look at the text very carefully. It's all about the attitude of the people giving. And so it turns out Abel's heart was right with God, so his sacrifice was accepted. Cain's heart was not right with God. We know that because his heart wasn't right with his brother. So if your heart is not right with your brother, it's not right with God either. And so attitude is critical. So these guys, again, we don't know exactly uh, with uh, Nadab and Abihu. We don't know exactly the details. Uh, Again, scholars have wrestled with this for millennia, and you're welcome to wrestle all you want. Uh, But the bottom line is something was wrong uh, with the fire. It was either it was doing it their way and not God's way. But these guys were supposed to be ministers in the temple. 
And ministers must be especially careful, and I'm preaching to myself right now. We are to set the example for our congregations and others. And according to James chapter 3 and verse 1, we will be judged by a higher standard, a higher standard than everybody else. We must give an account of our shepherding. And in fact, we will answer to none other than the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd. Uh, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. He says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. But uh, we shepherds, under shepherds, sometimes pastors are known as, we will give an account to the chief shepherd. And unfaithful ministers will be destroyed. Unfaithful ministers will be destroyed. Second Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. I don't know who I told today. I, I, I don't think I told the church, but if I did, I apologize for repeating myself. But I, I was, uh, had to go pick up something yesterday afternoon. And as I was going down the street, I saw a couple bumper stickers. And the one said, I stand with Planned Parenthood. And the other bumper sticker right next to it was the name of these people's church. And it wasn't some cultish thing. It was a Methodist church of all places. Now, again, that person driving that car uh, maybe isn't getting that teaching from his church, but I wouldn't be surprised if he were. And if he is, that's a minister who's going to give an account for what he is teaching his people, that it's okay to promote abortion. Not the fact that somebody gets in trouble, they have an abortion, God forgives them, but to promote the thing. That's an entirely different situation. Anyway, God's word is full of commandments. Not suggestions, not recommendations, it's full of commandments. And God has given us commands because that's what he wants. And God has given us commands because he knows obedience is what's best for us. Now, these are not commands in order for us to be saved, but these are commands because we have been saved. We are going to want to be obedient to the one who saved us. And learn from Nahab and Abidu, or no, Ab whatever their names are, Abihu and Nadab, learn from them that we disobey God at our own risk. We disobey God at our own peril. Every act of disobedience, we call that sin, every act of disobedience carries consequences of some sort, and some of the consequences are quite severe indeed. You look at the consequences here, these guys died because of their disobedience, because they offered fire in a way that wasn't God's way, it was their way. But I want to point out something else on this passage, and that is that bad things happen to good people. Now, Aaron was chosen and used of God, chosen and used of God. But two of Aaron's sons were killed, and they were killed in the service, the same service that, that Aaron was providing, the priestly duties. They were killed in the service of the tabernacle. Aaron was a good guy, and yet two of his sons were killed. Fathers have a critical influence on our children. And in fact, we've gone over this many times, but fathers are assigned spiritual, the spiritual leadership role in the home by God himself. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, fathers, having your best influence on your children doesn't guarantee they'll be obedient. But I want to ask you, fathers and mothers, too, because sometimes fathers don't do what they're supposed to do and mothers come along and do. Are you, make a, are you making a positive influence on your children? And secondly, are you making your best influence on your children? 
Keep in mind that our disobedience affects others as well as ourselves. So uh, Nadab and Abihu, they were disobedient and they died, but that affected their whole family because they weren't there anymore. It affected mom and dad and everybody else. And my friends, when bad things do happen to good people, when bad things do come your way, trust God's purposes when bad things do happen. Never forget Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Never forget that. Keep that in mind no matter what is going on. This is all part of God's purpose, all part of God's plan, and he's going to bring good out of it for you, and he'll bring glory to himself. So we see risky disobedience. Nadab and Abihu, they offer this strange fire. Whatever it was, it wasn't God's way, and God killed them as a result. But second, I want us to look at the responsibilities of the Levites. Now, we started talking about this last week where we looked at the tabernacle and where everybody was uh, positioned around the tabernacle. The one tribe we didn't look at last week, we mentioned it, but was the Levites, where they were. And they were right up against the tabernacle. And then if you recall, I don't have a picture to show you tonight, uh, but uh, if you recall from last week, the children of Israel encamped like a cross. If you were able to fly over and look down on the children of Israel in the wilderness, they were camped out like a cross. Every time they stopped and set everything up, it was a cross. That would have been meaningless to them, but very meaningful to us later on looking back at it. Well, right in the center of that cross where the beams would cross, that was the tabernacle, and then the Levites were positioned north, east, south, and west around that. And so... I like to do north, east, south, and west, so these verses, and I'm not going to read them, but verse 35 tells us uh, where the Levites are to the north. Verse 38 tells us where they are to the east. Verse 29 tells us where they are to the south. And verse 23 tells us where they are to the west. But the point is that these Levites had been set apart for service. Even where they lived around the tabernacle, they had been set apart. They had this special area just for themselves. Nobody else could live there. And so they'd been set apart for service. And the Levites were to help Aaron and his sons in the priest's office. Look at verses 6 and 7. Bring the tribe of Levi near, present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him, and they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And so these guys, the Levites, were positioned northeast, south, and west. They were set apart for service. They were to help Aaron and his sons in the priest's office. They actually also were to keep the tabernacle holy using lethal force if necessary. Look in verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall wait on their priest office and the stranger that comes near shall be put to death. And so just like we got security people here, I don't think our... We wouldn't put anybody to death, would we? Okay. Would we threaten it? We should maybe threaten it. Uh, but anyway, but if somebody's, you know, really something's really going down and the police officer comes there, it could happen. But that was these guys' job. If somebody came near that wasn't supposed to be, they were to kill them. That would keep the tabernacle holy. Now, each family had a different job. In verse 25, we read about the Gershonites. They were in charge of the large structures of the temple. Verse 31 tells us about the Kohathites. They were responsible for the interior furnishings of the tabernacle. And then we learn about the Merorites in verse 36. They were responsible for the smaller parts of the tabernacle. And so you have all these Levites, and they all had their different jobs to do. Just as there are different responsibilities in ministry today. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, these people were in the ministry, not the same 
kind of ministry that we think about in modern times, but it was ministry, serving about the tabernacle, taking care of things that needed to be taken care of. But in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, the scriptures say this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so you've got, you've got these ministers in the church, but they're doing different things. Just like the Levites were in the tabernacle, but they're all doing different things. And so when it comes to ministry from the New Testament, we see, first of all, it says God gave some apostles. Now know this, that apostles, this is no longer a church office. This was a special office for New Testament times only. However, the word apostolos in the Greek means sent out one. And so this is akin to our missionaries today. Again, I'm not saying our missionaries are apostles, but I'm just saying the apostles, the word means to be sent out. And what we do with our missionaries is we send them out. And so uh, as, as we try to appropriate uh, Ephesians 4.11 for modern times, uh, we would say, okay, he gave some to be uh, missionaries. And then he mentions prophets. Prophets speak forth the word of God. Then he mentions evangelists, those who have the gift of evangelism, people like uh, Billy Graham that just like he says, hey, you know, it's uh, kind of 70 degrees and cloudy today and people get saved. You know, he's got the gift of evangelism. And then he mentions pastors and teachers who provide spiritual care and nourishment. And then he even mentions administrators. These are the people that are really good at organizing stuff. So again, the entire church has a responsibility to serve. Together we are the body of Christ and we all work together even though we have different jobs. And no one job is more important than any other job. I know in the church we tend to look at the pastor and say, well, that's the most important job. It's not. It's just one of the many jobs that need to be done for the body of Christ to be healthy. But even as those Levites were consecrated, they were set apart. Ministers are to be consecrated, set apart as well. Not just to do the job, and it's certainly not an easy job at times, but we have been called and set apart by God. And then when it comes to ordination in the church... Ordination is affirmation of this process. When we ordain somebody to the ministry, when the church ordains somebody, and I'm not talking about deacons, that's a little bit different. But I'm talking about uh, pastors, that kind of thing right here. Ordination is affirmation of what has been going on. First of all, we affirm that this person has been chosen by God. Secondly, we affirm they've been chosen by the church. And thirdly, we affirm they've been chosen to serve. And so ordination is the affirma- is affirmed by this process. And I don't know, but perhaps God is calling some of you to full-time service. I don't know if he is or not, uh, but I remember hearing that many times as I was a, a young man, or not even a man, I wasn't 18 yet, but hearing in church and the pastor would say, maybe some of is calling, God is calling some of you to be you know, full-time service. I'm like, not me. <laughs> Guess what? Uh, I was wrong. Here I am. Here I am. All right. Now, I told you we're going to get to the Levites, or I mean the census. The Levites had their own census. So last week we looked at the census, and then when we were in Numbers chapter 1, we looked at the census. Well, the Levites had their their own census. And if you look in verse 15, this census was males one month old and up. This is important. Let me read verse 15. Number the children of Levi after the house of their fathers by their families. Every male from a month old and upward shalt thou number them. And if you look in verse 35, the count of the Levites was 22,000 even, 22,000. All right. So we've seen risky disobedience. We disobey God at our own peril, at our own risk. 
and it can be uh, the consequences can be very severe indeed in the case of these two guys they were killed for their disobedience then secondly we looked at the responsibilities of the levites they were to help Aaron and the rest of the people and they had their own responsibilities and they were set apart thirdly i want us to look at the redemption of the firstborn redemption of the firstborn this is where that census comes in look in verse 13 because all the firstborn are mine for on the day that i smote all the firstborn in the land of egypt I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Egypt, excuse me, Israel, both man and beast, mine shall they be, I am the Lord. God had a special claim to the firstborn in Israel. He had a special claim to the firstborn in Israel. We're going to look at that, but we see it here in verse 13. He says that, all the firstborn are mine. He's very strict about that, very clear about that. Now, the Hebrews attach special privileges and responsibilities to the firstborn. For instance, in a Hebrew family, the firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. If you know the story about the, uh, the prodigal son, you know, from the New Testament, the prodigal son wants his inheritance. His brother gets twice. He still gets his, his uh, portion, and he goes out and wastes it. But anyway, uh, they received a double portion of the inheritance, and so that was one of the things about the firstborn. Secondly, the firstborn would become the family leader upon the death of the father. So when the father died, the firstborn then was the leader of the family. The firstborn was not only chronological, but it was a status symbol. So not only because you were born first, you know, that was, you were the firstborn, but it was also a status symbol. And think about what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus is also the firstborn. In Colossians 1.15, he is called the firstborn of creation. In Luke 2.7, he is called the firstborn of Mary. In Colossians 1.18, he's called the firstborn of the dead. And in Romans 8.29, he's called the firstborn of the brother. And so when you see firstborn, you really need to understand that that has to do with the Hebrew family unit of, of giving not just chronological, but their status involved there. And that is the point, calling Jesus the firstborn of creation, for instance, because our Jehovah's Witness friends, what they say is that God created Jesus and then Jesus went on to create everything else. And so he's the firstborn of creation. What they're not understanding is what that that term firstborn really means. It's a status symbol. Well, because the firstborn were God's property, they had to be redeemed. They had to be purchased. They had to be bought back. God set them aside for himself in the Exodus. Notice in verse 13, he mentions that when he's talking about the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That's when I hallowed unto me. I set apart to me all the firstborn in Israel. And so God set them aside for himself in the Exodus. Now, you know the story of the Exodus, the people that put blood over their doorpost. Uh, when the death angel passed by, uh, if there were a firstborn in there, but there were blood over the doorpost, the firstborn was saved. If, however, the people refused to put blood over the doorpost and there was a firstborn in there, when the death angel passed by, they died. After the Exodus, as a reminder of the Exodus, God maintained his claim over firstborn males. You need to go back to Exodus chapter 13 to see this. Exodus chapter 13, verses 11, 12, and 13. The Exodus is over at this point. I mean, the, uh, when they leave, Egypt is over. Verse 11 says, And it shall be when the Lord shall bring you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, that you shall set apart unto the Lord all that opens the matrix, every firstling that comes from a beast which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. 
In every firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of man above the children shalt thou redeem. So it all goes back to the, the death angel that night, the pa- Passover. I keep calling it Exodus. I meant Passover, which is connected to the, uh, connected to the Exodus as well. Uh, but anyway, it all goes back to that. That's when God determined, now in Israel, all the firstborn, animals, people, belong to me. They belong to me. And if you want to keep them in your family, you've got to buy them back because they're mine. God here chooses the Levites over the firstborn males. Look in verse 12. I'm back to Numbers chapter 3, verse 12. And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that opened the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. So remember, we counted the Levites. There were 22,000. Do you remember that? Well, also from the census from the previous week, we learned that there were 22,273 firstborn males. So you've got 22,000 Levites, and you've got just a few more, 273 more of firstborn males. And so the redemption price of the firstborn was to be the Levite's service to God. And so rather than paying... Uh, this the, the firstborn price, the redemption price for 22,000 people, God says, I'll tell you what, their service to me in the tabernacle, that'll be the price. However, there needed to be a financial redemption for the 273 remaining firstborn. Look in verses 46 and 47. And for those that are to be redeemed of the 203 score and 13, that's 273 if you don't speak old, of the firstborn of the children of Israel, which are more than the Levites, you shall even take five shekels apiece by the pole after the shekel of the sanctuary, shalt thou take them. The shekel is 20 gerahs. And so there's an exchange, one for one exchange. There's 22,000 Levites, and so... 22,000, there's 22,273 firstborn. So one for one for one for one for one. And then they're left with 273 left. And so that requires five shekels apiece. Why would the Levites need to be redeemed? I mean, after all, they are the ministers, right? They are working in the tabernacle. They are conducting, other than these two guys we looked at in verse 4, they are conducting the will of God, carrying on the worship for the people of Israel. Why would they need to be redeemed? Well, this points out the necessity of redemption. Even the Levites, even the ministers come up short. We all come up short. We have all sinned. When the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it doesn't say, except ministers. Although Scott comes close, I think. But it doesn't say that. It says, for all have sinned. I don't care who you are, unless you're Jesus Christ, you're a sinner. It's interesting that Christ is both our Redeemer and our exchanger. He made the exchange one for the other, our sin for his righteousness. And he purchased us with his own blood. And that's why every time you hear me speak, I mention somewhere how Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, how he was buried for our sins, and the third day he rose again for the dead because in that act, he made the exchange 
our sin for his righteousness. In that act, he purchased us with his own blood. Whether you're a minister or just another servant in the church, you need to be redeemed because you're a sinner. And Jesus is the only one who can provide the redemption that you desperately need. And so uh, we've seen tonight, first of all, risky disobedience. Go ahead and disobey God at your own risk, your own peril. Will you die? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. And then secondly, we looked at the responsibility of the Levites. They were to be right up there next to the tabernacle. That's where they served. That's where they worked. But that's also where they lived. And then thirdly, we looked at the redemption of the firstborn. You know, when you get into numbers and all these numbers, remember that's why it's called numbers, because there's all kinds of numbers. They're there for a reason. And I hope now tonight, at least a little bit, you understand why some of these numbers, the census is so important. Because when it came down to redeeming the firstborn, they had to know exactly how many people there were so they could do a one-for-one exchange and then pay for the reigning so that they could be obedient to God. Because this is God's world. This was God's tabernacle. This is God's church. We need to do things God's way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for the blessings of the day. I think we can all leave here saying it's been good to have been in the house of the Lord. And that's biblical too. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Protect us and bring us back at the next appointed time. But until then, May we give you honor, glory, and praise. Through Christ we ask. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Good night.